Habakkuk. Had an Indian friend at the seminary who pronounced it Habakkuk. So no matter how you pronounce it, Habakkuk means the embracer. But this embracer of the land of Judah was perplexed. He was perplexed about the justice of God given the unrighteousness of people. His question was, how can a God of justice and manifold unrighteous behavior in a people exist together? That's like putting a blob of Rocky Road ice cream and broccoli in the same bowl. It's just not a mix. God's people will have to suffer because of the mess they've created by their sinning and the ones to clean up the mess will be the violent Babylonian army. That's not a fit for Habakkuk as he begins his book. I don't know of a better message today for, for today. For our world, our nation, our churches, our communities. Yes, even our families and our own selves than the message of the book of Habakkuk. Can God really be trusted when there is such tense racial unrest in American cities? Can God really be trusted if this pandemic of COVID continues and with it the demise of our economy? Trusted when our leaders viciously attack each other? Trusted when divorce, like a death, stings a family. Trusted when small children are killed by others. Can God really be trusted? And if he can be, why doesn't he speak? Why doesn't he give us some evidence that he has heard our prayers? In 608, the embracer, along with the people of Judah, were facing an imminent invasion from the world power of Babylonia. Two years later, the invasion started, and it lasted until the year 587 when the city of Jerusalem was leveled and the temple demolished. If you want an outline, it's very brief, very simple. It goes like this. Chapter 1 records a dialogue between God and the prophet Habakkuk. Chapter 2 is a dirge from God to Habakkuk. Chapter 3 is a doxology of praise from Habakkuk to God. Chapter 1, here's the dialogue. Verse 1, Habakkuk calls his message his pronouncement to the people, an oracle. An oracle was information that burdened his soul. It weighed deeply on him. It rattled him emotionally. Why? Verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you're not listening? 
or I cry out to you, violence. But you're not saving. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. God, you are so silent in the midst of the horror that I and the people of Judah are facing. Yes, the horror that they themselves have created. Malicious actions, the oppression of people, the looting of property, people being killed in the streets. Society is being pulled apart because people are doing whatever they want to do. Law and order fail to respond. And the legal system, it's simply a joke. Sounds like present day America. Many respects. God, you are so silent. And honestly doing nothing. No intervention. No responding to the mess that is here. Verses 5 through 11, God breaks his silence and he drops a bomb on Habakkuk. He says in verse 5, well, Habakkuk, for your information, justice is coming. But you're not going to believe it. And you're not going to like it. Look at verse 6. Or look at verse 5. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even, even if you were told. I'm raising up a people that will bring havoc to the havoc of those in Judah. And these are not nice people. They're not friendly neighbors. They're not people you would be naturally attracted to and want to put your arms around them and give them a hug. No, far from it. Look at these people. Verse 6. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places that don't belong to them. They are feared and dreaded people, a law to themselves, and they promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They're like a vulture sweeping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind, gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings. They scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture the people. Then they sweep past like the wind and they go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. 
Sin has abounded for a long time in the land of Judah. But that sin is nothing compared to the wickedness, to the unrighteousness in the Babylonians. It's true, Judah has created their own mess by their sinning. But the Babylonians, chosen by God to clean up the mess. Well, in verse 12 through chapter 2 and verse 1, the ball is now back in Habakkuk's court. As I said, this is a dialogue between God and Habakkuk. Habakkuk spoke first, and then God, and now Habakkuk responds, but honestly, he is struggling to find an answer. The perplexed prophet is more perplexed than he has ever been, and he is shocked, literally shocked at the answer that God has given. He just says that he will wait. I will wait for an answer. Look at verses 12 and 13. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you've appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish Oh God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? So he says at the end of this answer, God, I don't know what to do. I have no answer. For what's going on in Judah and what will happen through the Babylonians, I am totally lost. So Lord, I will simply wait for you to give an answer. That's verse 1 of chapter 2. Verses 2 and 3, God says to Habakkuk, that's right Habakkuk, I will give you a written revelation and I want you to make sure it is clear. Write it down on a tablet so a herald can pick up the tablet, run through the cities of Judah, proclaim my revelation. It will come at the appointed time when I want it to come. It will not linger. So wait. Wait. Waiting. It's one of the hardest words in the Bible to ever accept. We hate to wait. We'd rather have answers come to us today or sometime sooner. But you see, God is not like a heavenly bellboy service. You know, where you call in for something and it's delivered within five minutes or sooner. God's not into that. God prefers that He give us a period of time to wait when He can do amazing things 
that are silent, where he is invisible, where he's working behind the scenes and people know nothing about what he is doing. That's part of the waiting for God to do his amazing work. And you realize he doesn't apologize to us for having us wait. Nor does he ask our permission for us to wait. He simply says, wait. I love what Chuck Swindoll says. One of God's favorite methods to prepare us for something great is to send us into the shadows to wait. Beautiful. God in the process of doing something great as he allows us to wait. How do we wait? It's easy to say, it's easy to proclaim it in a message, but how in the world do you wait when you feel all of this anxiety, all of this pressure? All of this drive simply to know something so that you can wait even better. How do you wait? Well, I believe the answer is given in chapter 2, verses 4 through 19. It's in those verses that God describes the key to waiting. That's in verse 4. We'll come back to it. But in verses 5 through 19, God explains to Habakkuk that these people that will judge his own people will be judged themselves. And they will be judged on the basis of two things. First, their character. Verse 4, they are proud. They are puffed up. Their desires are not upright. Verse 5, wine controls them. They are arrogant people. They are never at rest. They are greedy as the grave and like death. They are never satisfied. Character issues. What is really inside of an individual. What's really inside of a nation of people. That deep-rooted character, which is really what we are. But then that character is expressed in behavior. And God tells Habakkuk, I will not only judge their character, I will judge their behavior. Verses 7 through 9. I will judge them because they have gone out and they have plundered other people. So because of their plundering of others, I will plunder them. They are a violent people. The blood of the people that they have conquered has filled the earth with blood. I will judge them for their violence. I will judge them for their contempt of others. And I will judge them for their idolatry. I will not look past what they have done. They will be judged. Trust me, Habakkuk. 
Trust me. Now go back to verse 4. This is the key to waiting. The righteous shall live by faith. That verse burned a fire deep in the soul of Martin Luther. It burned so strongly that it ignited the Protestant Reformation. As a monk for several years, Luther hungered and he thirsted for righteousness before God. He wanted to know that he was of worth, he was of value, he was of use to God. And so he looked for every way that he could to bring righteousness into his system. He tried fasting. He tried liturgies. He tried penance. He tried even to beat himself. He tried charities. Nothing worked. Nothing. One day as he was studying through the book of Romans, this truth recorded in Habakkuk and later recorded in three New Testament books, one of which is Romans, caught his attention. And it really grabbed not only his mind, it grabbed his heart. Because he discovered that righteousness before God is not something you can bring to your life on your own. You cannot do it. You can try anything in the world, any escape that you, that you invent, and you will still not be righteous before God. Luther discovered. It's not something that you earn. It is something that you are given. (laughs) You are given righteousness as a gift of God's grace when you place your faith in the person of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection for your sins. At that very moment, God declares that you are righteous before Him. You are of worth to Him. There's value now between you and God, and you are useful because you are righteous. As I said, that grabbed His heart. And one of the results was this remarkable Protestant Reformation that ignited all of Europe and it caught hold of America as well. Well, I said that this one verse appears in the three New Testament books and it's interesting, each part of this one verse, and there's three parts to it, are given in a New Testament book and that part of the verse explains the book. For example, the righteous, that's Romans 1.17 The book of Romans makes it very, very clear how God can take a desperate, empty sinner and bring them to righteousness. That's the book of Romans explaining what righteousness really is. You move over to the uh, book of Galatians, which is the great book 
of living. Living by the Spirit. The righteous shall live. What is that? What is living? It's walking by the Spirit. Experiencing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. That's living. The righteous shall live, but they shall live by faith. That's the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 10.38 explains what faith really is. Faith is a deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at the time. That's faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And that's the key to the events that will transpire in Judah by the judgment from the Babylonians and then God turning around and judging the Babylonians, which he did some years later when an alliance of the Medes and the Persians came together and they absolutely destroyed the Babylonians. You live by faith, Habakkuk, as all of this is transpiring. What is chapter 3? Well, chapter 3 is now a doxology of praise from Habakkuk to God himself. It's a wonderful praise. Habakkuk has heard everything that God has said. It's been plain to him. He said it written down on a tablet so others would understand it. And now he comes back to where he is before God and all that is on his heart is this marvelous prayer of praise that is given by faith. In verse 2 he says, God, as you do what you have promised to do, in your wrath, remember mercy. In the wrath that will be displayed upon your people and upon the Babylonians, God, you give us mercy. Mercy to make it through. And then from verse 3 through verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 15, you'll notice his praise of the God who is really there. Opening verses talk about God's magnificence through the universe. This is highly poetic literature. It may be difficult to read and understand, but Habakkuk has picked up the pen of of a psalmist, as it were, and he's writing in poetry, and the first part of the praise is God is magnificent throughout all of his universe. Then the next part is a praise for how God is control of nature. All that God brought together in nature, He is now superintending. He is in control of it. And the last part is as He crushes the wicked, He will save His people. But when you get down 
to the next verse, which is verse 16. He gives his reaction, his response to all that God has mentioned to him, and he is frozen. He is scared because of what God will bring to pass. Look what he says in his response. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips, they were quivering at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. It's like he's saying I can hardly move for what will take place. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. That's his response, or that's his reaction to all of this. But what's his response? It's given in the next couple of verses. Lord, though the fig tree doesn't bud and there are no grapes on the vine because of what will endure, and though the olive crop fails and no foods produced and fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Habakkuk is saying, Lord, what I and the people will face cannot be avoided. This is what's going to happen. We have to go through this so God it's in your hands. Or better, we are in your hands. Even though we have questions that only you can answer, we're in your hands. Even though we have such a deep sorrow in our heart that only you can comfort God, we're in your hands. Even though we at times will be angry and anxious and we will have tears and fears even though we will be perplexed and only you can understand God, we're right there in your hands. And that's where we're going to leave it. And God, we don't understand. All we understand is that you will move us toward rejoicing and being joyful in God, my Savior. Now that response may not come to you in your situation overnight. Sometimes we get the idea that God isn't very patient with us. That he wants, bingo, immediate action. Begin to rejoice now. Exult in Him. Be glad in the Lord. Even though it's like all of the world is crashing in on your head. You have never been in a crisis like this ever before. I mean, this is the worst of the worst you have ever been in. Everything is unraveling in your life. And rejoice. Exult. 
I believe it is a movement in that direction to the time when at some point we will begin to rejoice and exult in the living God. How does that happen? By focusing on Him, the who, and not the what or the why. You see, the stronger your position on the character of God, the greatness of God, all that's in His character, the more that becomes clear to your life. It will deepen your faith and bring you to a point of rejoicing in the Lord because you're beginning to see what God is doing as you waited. You focus on the who, not the what or the why. So what is faith? Let me say it again. The righteous live by faith, by trusting with a deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at the time. Confident in God's God's character. It's ways you don't understand. Now let me recommend that that become a living reality in your life every day. Okay? Let that become a reality. Not just on a Sunday when you've heard preaching and you've praised God and you're basking in the glory of who God is after a Sunday worship. No. You take to heart the essence of faith. And you pray that it become a reality that whatever your situation is, no matter how heavy it is, you will be the one that is trusting with a confidence in God's character. Deliberate confidence even though you don't understand what he's doing. So when there are no breakthroughs in your life, when you feel that God has abandoned your life through all of this mess that you're in and you're angry at him, when you feel hopeless and you feel powerless and you're clueless, This is how you live. And watch God move you to that place of rejoicing and exaltation. You say, I don't don't think I can do that. Yes, you can. You know why? Because the Lord Jesus died for you. And through his death and his resurrection, he has made this kind of living available to you. You see, he's gone ahead of you. He understands a crisis. He understands what happens when your life falls apart. He's been there. He's done that. But then he's done something about it. And that is to die for you and be resurrected on your behalf. You can do it. 
Let me close with this statement by Oswald Chambers. He said, God can never make us whine if we object to the fingers he uses to crush us. If God would only use his own fingers and make me broken bread and poured out wine in a special way. But when he uses someone whom we dislike or some set of circumstances to which we said we would never submit, we object. We must never choose the scene of our martyrdom. If ever we are going to be made wine to drink, we will have to be crushed. You cannot drink grapes. Grapes become wine only when they have been squeezed. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in your truth because your truth points us to life even when we're in a dire situation that we don't like. We would not have chosen this by any means. But God, we're in it. And since we're in it, give us the strength to live by faith. We are righteous because of Jesus. And we can live because of Him. And we can live by faith with that deliberate choice to be confident in your amazing character. Even though we are clueless as to what you're doing. We can trust you. You can be trusted. We will trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.